We're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're down to verse 16. Now, he's expressing a, a prayer for them before he goes into the next subject. But he says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, I'll read the next verse, may he comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. I like the part where he says, well, he'll strengthen your hearts, but it's by grace. So when people talk of grace, all you ever hear is God's unmerited favor. That is only a small part, but we are merited in Christ Jesus. So people can't excuse everything and say it's all God's grace. It's God's grace working in us. An apostle lets us know that God gave him strength to endure his his cross and his burden and his thorn in the flesh, strength is what grace produces for the Christian. Otherwise, it has no effect. Unmerited favor and all that don't phase anything. It's dead by itself. It's passive grace. But the grace that God gives works something. It works something in us. It does something for us. So that's what we need to remember. So he's saying, I pray now that our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, the oneness of God in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are never separated. People try to separate them too much. Credit is given because of Christ's office and what he done, but it's through the Father. The Father's called the Savior, Jesus called the Savior, and the Spirit saved. They don't do anything as the Godhead. They're not working as triplets. Their oneness is so different that people go too far with some of the Trinitarian doctrines as if they're three separate gods. There's persons in it, but they're one God. And every gift and ministry and every work that God does, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are involved in it. The creation, the Father spoke it and he used it through the Word, uh, who we know now as Jesus Christ. It took on human nature, but it was the spirit that moved and accomplished it. So everything was made by the son, the same as the father, and made for him. So we don't need to be separating too much. Even Jesus, at times, he said, if you ask the father anything in my name, I'll give you. And a few sentences later, he says, if you ask me anything, I will do it. The oneness. And when they baptize sometime in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, at other times they only baptize in the name of Jesus Christ because he includes the Godhead. He is the Almighty God. He is the everlasting Father. So people need to not be so narrow-minded on things that even the Scripture doesn't explain some things. It states them as facts, okay? So he loved us, who? Both as one and has given us an everlasting comfort, a hope by grace. God's grace is blessing and favor, yet it is strength to the spiritual man to do and to please God. So when the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, indwells the Christian, he's in unity with the human spirit, and he becomes the new man as he yields to him. And it's the new man that God strengthens. He doesn't strengthen the old nature, the soul and the body. He basically goes to the spirit of man. And it's to be renewed. And as it stays with and is yoked with the Lord, 
then they're one in spirit. They accomplish and bear fruit, but it does not by itself. So we have to have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, indwelling us, or we cannot do anything spiritual. It's impossible. We need the aid of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the great counselor and the one called alongside. He doesn't do it without us, and we don't do it without him. So when people say, give God too much credit, it's all grace. Well, they're not telling the truth because he does it through the believers, even the gifts of the Spirit, every one of them. You have to have the human consent. It said, they spoke, who? The Christian, as the Spirit gave utterance. So the speaking in tongues would be invalid if the Spirit didn't give utterance, and it couldn't be spoken unless people consented to it. And the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. The Holy Spirit inspired the New Testament prophets too as he moves on them, but they do the speaking and they can use their will and exercise time and purpose. They're not overwhelmed. They're not commanded like a parrot. Some people, they just sit there like a parrot. He does not have robots. It has to be with their consent and therefore it has to be judged. It wouldn't have to be judged if it's solely God. It has to, because man, even good Christians are capable of failing or slipping a mickey from the devil and not being aware of it. The human nature can get involved and mess things up. So they have to be evaluated and see whether the Lord's speaking and how much of it is man interfering. And the prophets were to do that, the New Testament prophets. So we see that. For us to do good and please God, we have to have Christ in us. He comforts, he consoles us with strength in your spirits. That's where he's doing it. Most of the word in the New Testament, they translate a lot of things as your heart. Well, we know your heart has nothing to do with it. Your heart is your spirit. It's who you are. It's a part of your spiritual being. We are a body and a soul, and we have a spirit. And they're not separated. When the spirit separates from the soul and the body, we call that death. But the real you will go on as a personality, as a soul, a new soul or a wicked soul in hell. But your personality is your spirit and your soul. They're not separated as separate beings. They all go to the same place, okay? They just function a little differently. Like we talk about a diamond, a standard diamond has 58 facets. So we use that to describe sometimes the facets of God. But that is not all God is. God is not grace alone. He's judgment. He's holiness. He's wrath. We take a facet out to magnify it and explain it. But it's all of them that make who God is. So if you take a facet away from a diamond, you do not have a diamond. You have to have that, all of them or there is no diamond. So that's how it is with the Lord. Judgment and mercy, grace and wrath, mercy and judgment. They all fall in their particular place, but it's the same God. And he is the Lord who says, I change not. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. But here, what we see is in 2 Thessalonians, he prays to the Lord Jesus himself and God the Father. 
but in First Thessalonians three eleven, he says, "Now may our God and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord guide us to you." See, they'll rework the word sometime because they're one. Jesus told Philip, and he said, "It'll be enough if you show us the Father." And Jesus said, "How long have you been with me and not know me? He has seen me, has seen the Father." The Father was in him. The Father was united with him. He claimed Godhead, but he could not use it basically other than by permission until God's glory was restored to him. When he ascended, all of the Godhead he was used in then, but he was limited in his human flesh on earth. He's not limited anymore. So he told the disciples, I'm with you. He's talking about bodily. He said, but I shall be in you as God. See, he'll be in you. I will not leave you orphans. So we're seeing that we should not, again, go too far with some of these teachings. You have extreme Trinitarians and you have extreme Jesus only. And it's in between. It's neither one of them totally. Okay. So he says, now may he guide you. Nothing is ever done on earth or heaven by God that does not include the Godhead, Jesus Christ himself, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. People say, well, at the white throne, it's just God the Father. No, it's not. Jesus is called God Almighty. All judgment is committed to the Son, all judgments. But he's acting as God. So uh, we again do not take honor from him. On the earth, he was limited as a human. And he did not know everything. And things, he said, he didn't know the time he was going to return. He knows it now, but he didn't when he was in his earthly body. He emptied himself of the use of divinity to become a human. He was baptized with the Spirit by John. He didn't need that if he was acting as God alone. It was the Holy Spirit that gave him the power to do miracles and do things because he was a human prophet and teacher, and he had to submit and follow him and obey him and all things, and he did, which made him the unblemished sacrifice that God could accept. It was his humanity that he had to yield and obey to be a representative for mankind. So the full Godhead, Jesus Christ, is with the Father God himself, Isaiah, again, says, his name shall be called. He's speaking of the Savior that's coming to earth, the Messiah. He says, he is the Almighty God and the Everlasting Father. Okay? He makes it very plain. Paul says, the Lord, that is, the Lord is Jesus and is the Spirit and the Holy Spirit. We're going to see that in Romans 2. In same verse, it'll say the Holy Spirit. Then it'll say the Spirit of Christ. And you'll see they're talking about the one executive power working in Christians. So we will see again that Paul said, uh, the Lord is that Spirit. What Spirit? The Holy Spirit. The Father Spirit. The Father of God. It's His Spirit. So we see the oneness of uh, the unity of the Godhead. So he who has the Son, John says, has the Father. You can believe in God Almighty and the Supreme Being, but if you don't have the Son, he's not that to you. 
So we would have to say Muslims and Hindus, and they do not have the true God. They may think he's their God. They may think he's the supreme being, or many of them. But he says, if you don't have the Son, you, the Father don't recognize you. Like Jesus said, I am the way, the life, and the truth. No one comes to God, the Father, but through me. Uh, so they are not serving the same God because God is not responding to him. He does not recognize well, who does not recognize the Son. Okay. Before the cross, like we said, Jesus said, I'm with you, but then I shall be in you. Paul speaks of Christ being in you, the Spirit of the Father and the Son. Go to Romans 8 9. So then, those in the flesh cannot please God. Those not yielded to Jesus Christ, uh, not under his control, they cannot please God. Well, if you don't please God, you're not making it to heaven. You have to please God. Obey him and follow him. But look at 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Who's the spirit of God? The Holy Spirit. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. So he's calling the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, and the spirit of Christ as being one and the same the unity of the Godhead. Like he said, we are one. He said, and those who obey him, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, we will make our abode in them. They don't separate themselves, okay? He is fully God. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are fully God, okay? And they don't work separately. They have different functions at times that they permit, but they let them, that's for man's understanding, okay? And now go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 3.17. We just quoted that. Now the Lord, he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, is the Spirit. What Spirit? He's the Holy Spirit. He's the Spirit of the Father. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So he's calling himself Christ is God. We'll see Peter does something very clearly too also. Peter makes it clear in all his in all the true translations. Sometimes they don't translate it properly, but a true translation will. Look at 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness. Now here they're not separated even in its translation, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's not saying the Father here. He's calling Jesus Christ God. And it's clear in all true translations, you won't say, well, the Father bless you. And here it's very clear Jesus is being called God, the Savior. And of course, under the Old Testament, God was the Savior of Israel, the Redeemer, Jehovah, the salvation, the Savior, the same as Jesus. So God and Savior, Jesus Christ, being one, not here seeing a separation from the Father. They're stating who he is. He is the Almighty. He is the everlasting Father. So Peter knew Jesus was and is God. They understood that. Now on earth, they didn't get a lot of this until after Pentecost. Go to Titus, and then we'll go on. 
worth emphasizing these things so people will see what we're dealing with. Titus chapter 2, verse 13, looking for, he's talking about when the Lord comes, for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's not talking about the Father. And uh, here again, he's speaking of Jesus Christ as being the God and Savior. Most translations say God and Savior. But in the original and most of the literal translations, it says the appearing of God, the great God, even our Savior, Jesus Christ. So in both these contexts, it's strictly referring to Jesus at this time. So they'll understand this, okay? And if you have a problem with it, don't worry about it. If you have the Son, you have the Father, okay? You don't have to argue about a lot of that. Okay, and now we go to chapter 3. Finally, brethren, he's ended his exhortation. He says, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. So he's saying the message that you received before. Uh, Paul is asking for prayers from the Thessalonian Christians uh, that he had previously established and met with, and they had done so well. He's praying for him and his workers. He was not beyond asking for prayer as an apostle. And he's praying that the word of God will go out and its purpose to honor and glorify God by what it produces, the spiritual fruit and works, just as it did with you. When we came the first time, we saw the results of God's blessing and his spirit moving us, the apostolic teachers, to give you a sound doctrine, okay? And verse 2, and that we will, you're to pray, that we'll be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have the faith. We'll be delivered, he's saying, from perverse and evil men, some men that hold no laws or principles and reckless even in the world, uh, and the devil can use them. Uh, pray that God will restrain them, uh, that we can uh, get the message. And they were often persecuted, but they were able to give the witness as God saw fit. But they were unreasonably wicked people, like they were at Noah's time. And that's why God, when the whole world became that way, he destroyed them. There was no reasoning. Noah preached to him 120 years. He didn't get no converts. Shows you how far they'd gone, okay? They weren't listening. Yet he was called a righteous preacher. Isn't that interesting? So you don't always have to look at the results. You look at the message and the times we live in. Lot was righteous. And he had no converts. Both instances, their families followed them. But there was no grace in them. It didn't say if they were much better than the other people. They had to have some morals. Noah's three sons, or he wouldn't have abided with them. They'd had to leave. But they weren't as righteous as Noah was. And the scripture tells us the times were so wicked in Israel that God said if Noah, Job, and Daniel were there, they would only save themselves and not their children. So it means that God would have expected more and he was going to punish more and not show the grace that he had once showed. So that's simply what he was saying. So we're saying, and the word here sometimes can be a little misleading. It says, 
for not all men have the faith. He's not talking about the Christian faith here. The word really is more like trustworthy. These people are not, these wicked people are not trustworthy. They're liars. Their opinions don't mean anything. But then he goes on to say that all men don't have the faith, and he's clear to mean trustworthy. But in the next verse, he's going to use something different. So we see on verse 3, but the Lord is faithful. That word again can be translated trustworthy. See, we're not talking about the faith, the faith in Christ, but of course that's what it's going to ultimately lead to. And so, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil. Here, a lot of people, again, they just leave the word evil. Some will add one, but it basically means the devil himself. Sometimes you'll find evil as the principle. Sometimes you'll find it because he's the head of all evil and the originator of sin. He's given credit. He's the father of lies. He's the God of this world. He's a murderer. All of these things he takes credit for. All sin originated with him. And the word father means originator. Okay. And so uh, he's saying that God needs to protect us from the devil. And the same in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil, but, but actually the translation is deliver us from the evil one. See, it's given credit for who he is and that all evil proceeds uh, from him, okay? He will strengthen, okay? Grace is to strengthen and to help, and he will protect you from the evil one, the devil. The devil motivates and inspires wicked people. That's how he gets things done. The same as God fills the godly with the spirit and anoints them to do ministries and, and bear fruit, well, the devil inspires his own and, and gives them more wickedness, and he can use them, and they become oppressed and possessed. The word actually possessed of a demon is not in Scripture. The word simply means to have a demon, and it seems like King Saul, it would come on them and off and leave at times. It was a part of them, but it wasn't there 24 hours a day manifesting itself. See, uh, sometimes De King Saul feels sorry, and, and he liked David to come back, and then a few days later, he wants to kill him. He goes back and forth because that spirit comes on him and motivates him. It motivated him to kill the 80 priests, and that's when there was no hope. That's when God never gave him any more mercy. And Samuel kept praying for him as king, and the Lord said, how long will you pray for him, seeing that I have rejected him? Because the high priest and their little village and family they were living, there were a couple hundred of them, and 80 of them priests. And because when Saul came by and found out they gave him bread to help David, he thought they were helping Saul. And he got so mad, he had them all put to death. And from that time on, you see no mercy given to Saul. He has blasphemed the spirit. And when he tried to call up Samuel, he said, why are you calling me? He said, because the Lord doesn't speak to me by dream or the holy lot or by prophet. God had totally cut him off. Okay. He promised David's descendants, even Solomon, that he would not totally do that, that they could uh, repent, that he wouldn't. And Solomon didn't, so he ended up a wicked idolater, and he's in the same place that King Saul is, okay? 
scripture tells us is wives in his old age led him from the Lord into idolatry. Some of his wives offered Solomon's own children, offspring, as burnt offerings. You think God was going to overlook this? I think not, okay? He'll be punished greater than Saul because of the privileges and honor that God gave him, okay? So he was a murderer from the beginning. People think, well, when he was fell with the angel, he wasn't a murderer in heaven. It means from the beginning of humanity, Satan inspired the first murderer. So Jesus called him a murderer because he was inspiring Cain to do it. Cain didn't have to do it, but he kept yielding to him, and he didn't overcome him as God warned him, you should overcome it. Well, he wouldn't have told him to do that if he couldn't have done it, but he didn't do it. And we saw that he killed his brother Abel. And so Jesus answered the Pharisees. He told them they would do the same. He says, your father's a murderer like you. He knew they would murder him. And he said, and your father is not God. He said, your father is the devil. You can imagine how that provoked the religious Pharisees who thought they were the elite. No wonder they hated Jesus. He says, your father's the devil. That would be very insulting, but it was the truth. So Paul, he tells us, you know, that God protects us, but often the Lord's deliverance is out of tribulation, and if not in it. Some are allowed and appointed to be persecuted, beaten, and put to death, but God gives them grace to do this. At other times, Paul was let out of the city, down the city wall on a basket. It was God's intention to find a way of escape for him. So he had to be in tune with the Lord to find out what he wanted to do. And some of them, they were going to have a martyr's death, as Paul and Peter did finally. But look at all the persecutions, and yet the Lord spared him from death. He was stoned, and they left him for dead, which he probably was, and the Lord raised him up again, and he went back preaching. So it wasn't his time, and God wasn't finished with him. But Stephen... He didn't serve too long, and he was stoned to death, and he was he was the one after the Pentecost. Him and James the Apostle were the first to be martyred. And as I've said before, martyrdom is wonderful, but if you live 50 years fake, you're going to get better than a martyr's crown. It's easy to live a year and be put to death in one hour. It's not sometime to live 50 years, uh, live like Lot did, and a wicked environment, and it said it vexed his righteous soul. So, but God will evaluate all these things. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. He evaluates all of these things. See, in the early church sometime when the Romans put people in the arena, and Christians sometimes were thrown in there, sometimes young Christians, they went in there purposely to be put to death. They were slaves. They were, what did they have to lose? They were looking for heaven. They were waiting and they were not encouraged by the Lord to do this. They were trying to get out, and so they didn't care if they were martyred. He wanted them to live and be a light and be a witness. So they were looking, like today, many professing Christians, they're looking for the rapture. But 98% of them are not going because they're not taking up their cross following the Lord. They're not obeying him. They're living in gross sin. They're not being led of the Spirit. So they can look all they want, But John said they're going to be ashamed or disappointed. Why? Because they're not going. 
and the Lord won't recognize them as his when he comes. See, they're looking for an escape. They want a crown without the cross, and that's not going to happen, okay? So the Lord gives grace if it's time for one to die. If not, he gives grace to endure the temptations and the trials. As he promised, he would not allow us to be tempted above what we're able. If it's to that point, then the Lord raises up a standard, and whatever the enemy comes in as a wicked army, the Lord puts a standard to match it. So he's not going to allow Christians that are walking in the Spirit and obeying the Lord, he's not going to allow them to be tempted above their able. But if we look in Revelations, and at the end time, many professing Christians are going to fail and backslide and go to hell. And that were once Christians, because they did not walk and stay with the Lord, that promise is not a, an effect. If you make provision for the flesh, you can't claim that promise. That's for those who are following the Lord and relying on him. And so the one church of Philadelphia, he said, because you have endured for my word's sake and name, he said, I will keep you from the hour of trial that will come upon the old earth. So he's saying something great's coming and nobody else is going to be able to resist it because they're wicked. But I'm going to not allow you to be put in that situation. As Jesus said, the time will come when the very elect would be lost if the Lord didn't shorten time. It's going to be so wicked when the demons are let loose that even the Christian following the Lord could not endure it. So the Lord is going to remove them or he's going to wait until they... So he regulates. If you're faithful to the Lord, he's faithful to his own. He doesn't give them more than he doesn't give them grace to bear. So when people fail and sin and back, it's their fault. They can't blame anybody else. People and the devil are just means and tools. It's their fault. And they will fall into judgment for that. Now, the wicked people that seduced them and led them astray, they're going to answer to God for their own sins. Okay? So verse 4, we have confidence in the Lord concerning you. Why? Because they always seen the results and the growing of the church, and the faithful and loyalty of it, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. See, they're giving commands in the name of the Lord. They're giving apostolic. Paul had the right to do that. And they had the prophets, New Testaments, and inspired teachers, which were laying the foundation of the church. It was not complete, but it was enough given when the Spirit came out, to save people and lead them to Christ. But he was still maturing the church and giving them more insight. The Bible says the angels look into these things. They're very concerned and interested. See, they're seeing how God can be gracious to a wicked devil people, save them. See, they never experienced evil. They've only saw its reaction and the third angels that fell. But then they see the working out without experiencing it. They got the, in a sense, Adam and Eve, they sinned when they ate of the forbidden tree of knowledge. If they had obeyed the Lord later on, he may have given them permission to eat. But the point was they disobeyed him. And that was the test. Well, the angels, the two thirds that are holy, they've never disobeyed the Lord. Jesus said, they always do the will of my father. 
which is in heaven. But they can learn without experiencing. Where humans, we are capable of both realms anytime. And they're watching how grace works, how mercy works, how holiness and judgment. We have to remember before the angels fell, angels never saw God's wrath or judgment. There was no purpose. He never had to use it. Judgment in that form and mercy did not come into being. They were totally in holiness and pleasing God. And so it must have been a shock to the devil when in an instant, Jesus said, I saw him fall from heaven like lightning. Once God decided the test was over, instantly they were cast out of heaven and anything of goodness in them was removed and they became devils. And it's interesting, when the rapture takes place, it'll be in a twinkling a moment. We will be put on immortality in a moment. We will be like angels instantly because the old nature and the human spirit will be left behind and we will be made new and changed. And it's amazing God can do this to millions of people in a split second. So I'm sure the fallen angels were shocked what happened once God decided. Then they experienced his wrath and anger. And they even today, they do not look forward to as the demons Jesus cast out of the man, they said, what have you come to torment us before the appointed time? They know hell was made for them. So somewhere along the line, God told them their judgment and it would be carried out at the end. So they know that now. Uh, In Revelations, it said, the devil, knowing that his time is short, pours out his wrath more. So even he knows there's a place when he's going to be cast into the lake of fire and full justice and holiness will be manifested, okay? And so we see they had proven their loyalty, so that's why he had trust in them. They had proven their loyalty, the Thessalonians. So he said, we believe you'll continually what we taught you, and you will continually to obey the words and commands we give you as apostles and teachers, and we do it, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he always makes that plain to them. And then again, he offers a prayer in five. May the Lord direct your hearts, your spirits, into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Okay. We pray that the Lord, the Lord, the Spirit, he's the one that's going to do it. The Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, is in your spirit. He's linked himself with you, Christ in you. We'll find that term used many, many times by Paul. See, he's speaking of the Godhead when he does that. Jesus, as a human, could not be in anyone. He's only spoken of as a Christ as the anointed one or in prophecy or what God's going to do. But when he ascended and returned to the Godhead, then he came back as the Holy Spirit. He is the Spirit of God. He is the Spirit of Christ. So if you're joined with him, you're in the love of God. And this must be communicated in its proper terms, not like it is today. Most of the world's concept of God is foolishness. And the love of God, they think he's some grand Santa Claus that overlooks everything. And they'll get away with everything because he's so nice. 
Well, the demons have lied to them because they are afraid of God's holiness and his judgment one day. We'll see he has not changed. People think, oh, Jesus came to be different than the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is Jehovah the Savior, and he's no different. He's just extending more grace and more light. But then those who don't respond, they will be punished more. So justice is never overlooked. Justice and mercy. God can be gracious to whoever. And if he gives them more grace, they better respond to it or justice will come. And that's why Peter said it's better not to have known the Lord than to know him and fall away. The backsliding Christian will be punished more than the average sinner that never came to the Lord because he was given more grace and privileges and justice demands a response to this, okay? And so we will see that he is the same. He is, I'm the Lord that changes not. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay, let us read 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Now by this, this is what I'm telling you, we can know that we know him, God, if we keep his commandments. So everybody in the world, everybody's a Christian nowadays. Everybody thinks they're Christian. We're a Christian nation. Bunk. We're not a Christian nation. There's only one Christian nation, and that's the body of Christ, the true church. Okay, We have a lot of people, and a majority claim to be Christians, but they're not living it, so they're not Christians, Okay, because they don't keep his commandments. Okay, Let's go ahead and take a break here. I'll come back. 